Okay, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll open uh, today's class. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for this time that you've given us. And I pray that you be with us as we're looking in Acts chapter 5, and uh, uh, give us understanding of what your word is saying, what your text is saying. And I also pray that you be with those who are coming in for Sunday school. I pray that you give them safety. And also those who are away from campus, I pray that you be with them and guide them, protect them, and also provide for their means. We pray, Lord, that you'll be glorified through this session, through this service, and also through our lives. And I pray that you be with uh, us and speak to us uh, through the preacher this morning and also this evening. Help us live our lives. I bring glory to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Okay. So there's nothing to be alarmed when I set up there. It's Acts 5, 1 to 11 recap. Are we still in Acts 5, 1 to 11? The question is not really, but we're still in chapter 5. Uh, of uh, book of Acts. So that is uh, one of the things that we learned previously is uh, about Ananias and Sapphira and also how Peter uncovered the sin of Ananias and, and also the, uh, how he uncovered sin of Sapphira. That is really interesting because it sort of um, made me think about the book of Genesis, for example, and we go all the way back into Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> if you look from chapter 2, 4 to chapter 3, 24, that is uh, from chapter 2, 4, is some people believe the second creation account where God actually created the second time. Uh, scholars like Tramper Longman and others believe him. I'm like, how can you just, how can you be an Old Testament scholar? Hopefully they're all going to listen to this. I believe in two creation accounts. That is one of the wrong beliefs that there are two creation accounts. I think they want to merge with evolution and creation and probably sort of get new, uh, probably sort of uh, get some, I don't know. To me, that's like a compromising thing. But maybe they don't want to get heated, heated debates with other people. I don't know. But there is no two creation that comes in the book of Genesis. There is only one. And chapter 2 is focused mainly on man. But then when you look at chapter 2, verse 4, where, this, where it says, this is the generations of the heavens and earth, and following until chapter 3, verses 24, the main thing is obviously we learned so many things. Obviously, God created man, and he didn't let it rain because there's no man to cultivate, to till the ground and so forth. And later on, he creates man, and then there is that emphasis, focus on the creation of man. And then we get into chapter 3. Um, there is a sin because God made Eve from the rib of man, and there's sin that entered in, in chapter 3. And when they took the fruit, when, when Eve ate the fruit, nothing happened. When Adam took the bite, they realized they're naked, they're hiding, there is that fear, there is that shame, there is a sort of a guilt feeling. And so God cursed, well, even before God cursing the whole creation, humanity, and serpent. He was asking questions, right? Adam, where are you? Oh, here comes the voice. I was trying to hide from you, and, and I saw you walking around. It's just, I'm scared of you. Scared of you. What? What? Did you eat that fruit that I took? He didn't give him any room. He straight, straight, straightly went to that question, did you eat the fruit from the tree that I told you not to eat? Oh, wait a second. Did you eat... No, you gave me that woman. So where is the first blame? The blame is going to who? Adam, come on. He just, he breathed the breath of life into your nostrils. The first thing you point your finger is, you gave me that woman. She gave me the food. So number one, 
Number two, who is the first fault? God's fault. God is the one who is at fault. So you gave this lady to me and he, she made me eat the fruit and I ate. Huh. Where did you get that from me? Oh, serpent told me so and so. Okay. So God cursed everything else. So what is going on in that passage is God is uncovering the sin. He's uncovering the sin. It's not like God doesn't know, right? I mean, where are you, Adam? What kind of question is that? Adam, are you hiding somewhere? I can't see you. I can't see you. Where are you? It's really it's not that God doesn't know where Adam was or what he did. He knew, but he was trying to uncover that sin. Same thing. We our similar thing we learned in chapter 5. And also another uncovering of sin is in Cain's life. I mean, sometimes we don't really go and look into Cain's life, right? We just bypass Cain. Yes or no? Sort of. Yeah. Just, just as a slight question, do you think like, um, sort of like when, when you're talking about that, the, the two creative stories in, in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, mm -hmm. uh, and then 2, two 4 and beyond, do you think like a cosmological approach, like advocated by Mike Heiser, would be sort of an answer to that? Or you know, would that be an appropriate counter to someone like Trump or Long? Yeah, I mean, well, what's it, you know, because I can see some significant downsides to, because, to, to cosmological? Yeah, to the cosmological approach, because it doesn't, it doesn't get you, it, it also raises some other significant issues as well, because it, it voids whether you go, if you go towards the cosmological argument, I think it solves continuity problems. But it also raises questions of, well, then this is not really a story about, it's not a real story about creation. It, it's sort of a story mm -hmm. of creation. Well, I mean, I would say, I would think, well, I would actually question then, what is the point of even that? Like, why is God giving Genesis 1 and 2? So a lot of them, I think they, they agree on the fact that this is really not a scientific chapter. It's not about science and so forth. It is just how God created the whole thing. So we're giving, uh, he's giving us that information. So my, Heiser's point would be to see everything from ancient perspective, how ancients would have understood. And this, their, their cosmology is different. And our understanding of creation is probably different. And evolution's way is different. I mean, what is there? A, is there a set way to understand Genesis chapters one to three? <laughs> no, there's a lot of questions, a lot of debates going on in Genesis one and three, one to three, even till this day. But my view on one to two, three, and two, four, and following is basically Genesis chapter one is just an overview of what God did, basic information. He didn't go into the depths of the creation. Chapter 2 is more specific because, again, what is the pinnacle of creation? What is the high? Huh? Humanity. So for me, it's so simple. In Genesis chapter 1, at least for my view, Genesis chapter 1 is talking about creation in general. 2, he's giving more overview, or not overview, he's being more specific because he's, he made a clear comment that there, the, there's no rain on the ground because there's no man to cultivate. So even before God make rain, rain, he needs somebody to take care of it. So again, just by that, the focus is on the man. And also, one of the things that I, I wrote a paper on that for uh, one of my professors on Genesis 2-4. These are the generations of the heavens and earth. The point of these 
the demonstrative pronoun in Greek, uh, these is forward referring, it's not backward referring. It's not really talking about, it's not pointing to the back thing that happened in the past. It's talking about forward from here on. Yeah, the first order. So these are moving from, the, it's not, it's not, the writer's concern is not about chapter one anymore. So that is an overview. In chapter two and following, he says, this is what happened. So you go forward from here. So that's how I understand that. The, uh, Genesis one is just an overview. Chapter two is more specific about man. Yeah, I've always seen it sort of like, I've always uh, explained it as it was a flashback. So you get this flashback to, to day six, mm -hmm. and then you see God honing in on day six of the creation right. and sort of laying out some of these different types of things. Um, to me, that makes more continuity sense. I, I think like I think like when Heiser does say that we need to enter into the mindset of the ancient Israelite, I, I do think that that's correct. Because if we're going to take, like, authorial intent seriously, that's, that's really what we need to do. So if we're saying, well, Moses wrote this and he wrote this to uh, the ancient Israelites, then, well, yeah, we have to enter into that mindset to understand what, what's being said and who's the audience mm -hmm. for that to properly pull out the hermeneutic. Yeah, I would definitely agree with, with him on that, where you really have to enter into their, you know, you have to put yourself in the scripture when you're reading it, because if not, then you're reading from the contemporary perspective, our perspective, which is going to be wrong. We have to understand scripture from their perspective. And, and uh, Walton says it right, and I agree with Walton on that, where he says the Bible is given, the scripture is given to them, but also for us. So the primary target audience are those people. But it's also given for us. So we have to enter into their time zone, into their, you know, time period and, and understand what's going on there. So, um, yeah, one is basic overview. Chapter two is more uh, specific information that is given in, in, in two. But then again, uh, my point is chapter two, verses four until 324, there is uncovering of sin. And this is also one of the things that we see here in, uh, in Peter's episode with Ananias and Sapphira, the uncovering of sin. And you look at chapter 4, where God is, you know, accepting, in chapter 4, accepting there is now Cain and there is Abel. And so God, is, God accepted Abel's offering, but not really Cain's offering. And so God had regard for Abel. I'm getting this uh, Abel. Abel is the Hebrew way of saying <laughs> the Ba sounds as Va in Hebrew. So God had a regard, meaning he was intently looking at Abel's offering, like he was so focused. He had a regard for Abel's offering, whereas Cain, he didn't regard at all. He didn't even care. So some people think, well, because Cain brought something really not so with a fully dedicated heart or happy heart. He was, he, maybe, maybe like Ananias and Sapphira, he kept a little bit good stuff and brought the bad odd stuff to God, whereas Abel was so innocent, he just brought everything else, one of the first fruits, the best thing to God, and God accepted Abel. So after that, what do you see? I mean, Cain is not happy, and obviously God actually questions him and says, why do you have such a long face, Cain? 
What's going on? Oh, because you didn't regard mine. If you only do what is right, I would have regarded yours too. So God is uncovering there's something going on in Cain's heart. And we don't see what is happening until God says, be careful, the sin is crouching at the door. He didn't give any room for Cain to talk anything. Cain was just listening and God was making this comment. You be careful. Sin is waiting for you at the door. His sin is about to attack. Sin is like a demon that's going to pound, like a, like a wild beast that's going to pound on somebody else if you allow it. So that sin is waiting. So be careful, Cain. He didn't care for nothing. What happened after that? He just went on, killed his brother. And then God said, what do you do? Your, blood's, your brother's blood is crying out to me from earth. Am I what? What do you mean, what did I do? I don't care. I don't care to answer you. Am I my brother's keeper? No. Go find yourselves. Cain, because you did this, this is the curse upon you. You're going to work even hard. You're going to have a hard time finding food. Oh, oh, you are putting too much on me. Even that, even in the garden, we see God's graciousness. After Adam and Eve sin, even in Cain's life, we see God's graciousness. He removes that burden a little bit, right? For what he has done. But still, the point of that as well is God uncovering the sin of Cain because Cain was about to do something bad and God knew that. God knew what he's going to do. And so he said, sin is crouching at the door. Be careful. He didn't care. He didn't. He let sin take capture of him. And what happened? God cursed and he was a wanderer. He was, there's no place for him to stay in one place. He's just going around throughout his life. He was just so scared. I mean, the way his life what was designed or maybe his life was cursed after that is no matter where you go, you have no safety and you know that. You would know that somebody is trying to take you out. You, you have to constantly live with that fear. That is what Cain's life ended with. So what we see there is recovering or uncovering the sin. And even in chapter uh, 5, we also see from 1 to 11, we learn that Peter was uncovering that sin. Obviously, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And, you know, basically, it is really not Peter who's doing it. Who's doing the work? Who's doing the work through Peter? I mean, he was filled with Holy Spirit, right? Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, we, we learn, I mean, throughout this passage from 2 onwards and following, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know. We see that. And here, maybe God is asking through Peter, Ananias, what did you do? I mean, you lied to the Holy Spirit in one verse, and then he says, next one, you lied to God, right? So he was making sure he, that he was revealing the sin. Ananias and Sapphira thought there's nothing wrong. We could do whatever. Nobody is watching. But he made sure that God is watching. God's presence is in the midst of this people, this new congregation. You cannot fool God. God will not take anything lightly. Did God take or took the murmurings of Israel lightly in the wilderness? I mean, he had a lot of patience. Right? For 10 times, he was... He was just holding on, holding on, holding on. And Moses complained, Lord, what is this? I cannot handle Take me out. This, this is too much burden for me. God says, what? Okay, I'm going to ease your workload, but let me do something here. Because they're not complaining about you, Moses. They're complaining about me. So what I am to them, they're not satisfied with who I am. They're not satisfied with what I give. They want more and more and more. They want this, they want that. So I'm going to teach them a lesson. And God taught them a lesson, right? So obviously God is not going to take these accusations uh, lightly because he is a holy God. I mean, and, and 
they lied to Holy Spirit, and then eventually we learned through the passage that they actually lied to God himself because Peter was making a point. The Holy Spirit is God, and they lied. We also looked at some of these uh, theological implications from Ananias and Sapphira's uh, story. And one of the things that I want to point out is, as uh, last week, maybe we can talk about that uh, later at some point. Uh, last week is uh, we learned that God would chastise his people. God would chastise those whom he loves, right? What does it mean by chastising in general? Discipline. But in Ananias and Sapphira's case, what the discipline? Is it sort of a discipline? Why would, I mean, we know what happened in Ananias and Sapphira's life. They were killed. They were dead on the spot because they were playing games with God. And, and some of the things, I mean, there's so many theological implications we go into, but some of the things that we can learn is obviously we cannot take God lightly. We cannot you know, assume things that we cannot just think he's going to be okay. What if he's not going to be okay? And we can come up with an argument saying, well, I mean, I've seen a lot of people play with God. A lot of people just take God lightly. A lot of people claim to be Christians, but they're, they're not serious enough to live up their life to the standards of the scripture. And God still did not do anything. There are people that were thinking that way, right? So obviously God is not going to do it to me, even though if I don't live the fullest Christian life. And then some might even make a point saying, oh, this is... This happened in the first century. And some of them might even say the biblical events actually happened in the early centuries. So, I mean, it's, they're not happening now. So that is not going to take place now. That's not going to happen now. So he, we come up with all kinds of excuses to live out our lives, but really not living according to the standards that God has called us to live by. I think it was the... Yesterday's devotion, where Dr. Ray said uh, in the devotion that a lot of people who claim to be Christians, we will not see a lot of them that claim to be Christians in heaven. If you hear some of the you know, biblical teachers teaching, I don't know if you heard the name by Woody Bachman. That's his name. You, you, you heard his name, Woody Bachman? He's one of, I believe, reformed uh, theologian. He, he is probably dean of a school somewhere in Africa, in South Africa. But he says, um, he said something similar to that. You won't see... Uh, oh, are you talking about Vadi? Uh, oh, Vadi? Is his name Vadi or Woody? Yeah, 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 yeah. The, he, he, he American, he took a position in Africa. as a preacher in Africa. Yeah, but he, I don't think uh, he's... He taught here too, someplace, but he's not probably doing that any, any longer. I don't know what he's doing now, but I think he said that you won't see a lot of, uh, you won't see a lot of, a lot of smokers and drinkers and everything else in hell or something similar. And then why is that? Why would you not see them? Because he said that's not the basis for salvation. You won't see a lot of these so-called faithful people in heaven because just because you claim to be faithful doesn't mean you're going to make it to heaven. You know, people, how many, I mean, who would want to be, who would want to listen that, uh, you know, there's someone telling them that they're not living Christian life? Who's going to be okay if someone comes to us and say, you are not living a Christian life? Who, who, who's going, are we going to be okay if someone points their finger at us? 
I say this in every, any class I teach, nobody is responsible to nobody's salvation. We are responsible for our own future. Right, there are so many Christians that, uh, I mean, it was the point that he made with Dr. Ray, made a lot of people who claim to be Christians would not make it in heaven. That is, that is true to the extent where people are not living to a life that God asks us to live, then I doubt that they would have any entrance into the holy presence of God. And one, I mean, we learn from this thing, right? What do we learn from this thing? If people are not sincere, not serious with God, obviously God will teach them a lesson or God will do just what he did to Ananias and Sapphira. We should not take anything lightly and just minimize the power of God, minimize how God would take things uh, into consideration when we are playing around with him. How many of you recall, remember the story of Jephthah in the book of Judges? What happened to Jephthah? If you give these people to me, I'm going to give you whatever comes out of my house. God said, okay. Who came out of his house? The only one. His only beloved daughter came out of the house, and what happened? He had to sacrifice her. Some people make the claim that he sent her to the temple. I don't really believe that. He sent her to the temple uh, to live there. That is a sacrifice. But obviously there is that language of burnt sacrifice. But you see, I mean, when we challenge God by not obeying what he's doing, and when we challenge God of his sincerity, of his faithfulness, of his power, God will act to show. And that is one of the things that we would learn from this passage, is that God is present, God is active at that time, obviously, and also today. Um, and so <clears throat> he wouldn't take anything lightly. So we must know and understand that this Christianity is a complete transformation from inside out, and we learn that Ananias and Sapphira didn't have none of that. There's no pure, complete transformation. If they had transformation inside out, they would have not done what they did. So would we then say that Ananias and Sapphira didn't suffer discipline, but they suffered punishment? Yes. Because, I mean, if they're not transformed, mm -hmm. then they're not suffering discipline from God. What they're suffering is actually punishment. Yeah. I mean, lukewarm, the, uh, maybe, maybe that lukewarm Christianity wasn't mean by lukewarm Christianity. Like, I'm, I'm a Christian, but at the same time, I'm also sort of yes and no Christian. So I've always had problems with that because, you know, it, it seems to me that... Um, if, if you're okay with lukewarm Christianity, then you're probably not a Christian. No. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, you, you, like I said, I think in several of these lectures, I said uh, you can't travel on two boards at the same time. You can't worship two masters. You're either on that side or on this side. There's no partial Christianity. Is there a partial Christianity? I think there are more partial Christians than any, I mean, at least in their minds, more partial Christians than pure Christians. So you cannot really be on the Lord's side and say, I'm going to live my life however I want to live. It's just not going to work like that. You're either with the Lord on his side or you're against him. You're either the son of God or you're either the child of God or you're the enemy of God. There is no middle ground when it comes to the God of the Bible. I don't see any, it's not like, it's, this. see, our relationship with Jesus Christ is not a theory. Is it a theory? Some of them have partial, for example, one of the scholars of Bible that I respect, he's no longer now, but he's, um, you know, he knows better. Now, <laughs> Dr. R.C. Sproul, 
I, I love his lectures. I mean, he's not the same thing. I don't believe in all he, he believes is a reformed theologian. I just love the way he speaks and he explains things. And he's just an amazing teacher from my understanding. But at one point, he believed in full preterism. Preterism meaning all revelation things have been done away with. There's no more book of revelation happening here. But then again, I think before his death or maybe a few years before his death, he believed in partial preterism. Meaning most of the chapters of the Revelation happened in the past, 70 AD. That is when all these things took place, but there's second coming that is yet to happen, that is in future. So for me, I mean, there's no partial thing. You either believe this or they believe this. If you believe in sort of a partial theory, what you're saying is, I don't really know what to believe. Are you all with me? Either you fully believe the scripture is inspired word of God, or you don't believe it at all. There is no partial inspiration. There is no parts of scripture that is inspired, and parts of it is not inspired. And what people may claim that uh, scripture is not fully inspired because at least one point they hold on to is that Paul said at some point in his literature, I said, I, Paul, it's not the Lord, but I say so and so and so. So, hey, that's not from the Lord, so that's not an inspired part of the text. So, I mean, we can't, we can't, again, travel on two boats at the same time. Either you believe on this side, you believe on that side. So if there is a lukewarm Christianity, for example, like this, this guy, Ananias and Sapphira, they were really not fully into the Lord. I mean, they saw, the problem is this, they saw the work of God in their midst, right? It's not like they didn't know what is happening. Jerusalem city or the Solomon porticos, wherever these people are teaching from, these disciples are teaching from, that is one of the central places in that city. So people knew, people saw what's going on most likely. They were part of observing a lot of things that disciples were doing. And they came to believe in the Lord. And all of a sudden, it's like, you still do what you're not supposed to do. But so did Judas. Judas was sent out. Judas performed miracles. Judas saw the signs and wonders. He himself did many of the different things that the other disciples did. Cast out demons and things like that. And what happened? Yeah. He's never part of... Wow, that's even, that's even scary, right? He's never part of the family of God. But he was sort of fully involved. And that's why I think the scripture says... Uh, it might be Hebrews 6 or Hebrews chapter 10 where it says this, there are some people who experience the Lord, who experience the Lord but still are given back to, to the world. What does he mean by giving back to the world? They've fallen away from faith. They have experienced the Lord but they have fallen away from, from faith. That is where uh, the, the, the teachings of people losing faith or losing salvation comes from, from Hebrews chapter 6 and chapter 10, that you can lose your salvation. But maybe that's another thing to discuss at another time. Psalmist calls on the people saying, what? Taste and see the Lord is good. Right? That's an open call for everybody. Taste and see the Lord is good. Meaning what? Experience and see that the Lord is good. So people can experience and still deny Judas was part of the inner, uh, part, not inner circle. He's part of the disciples, disciple circle with Jesus Christ. I mean, he's been with him for a long time. He saw like what he was doing, everything else. He still did what? Gave the Lord. I mean, he never truly, completely, wholeheartedly believed in Jesus Christ. And I just get fascinated when I hear what, uh, what Judas questions him. 
When Jesus, Jesus said, today one of you is going to betray me, and everybody else says, Lord, is it I, is it I, is it I, is it I? And then Jesus says, is it I, Lord? Until then, Jesus, did Jesus respond anything? Oh, no, Peter's not you. Oh, no, John is not. Oh, no, Matthew, not you. Did he respond anything? He came to Judas and said, is it I, Lord? It's amazing. In the Gospel of John, he, John was even more specific as, as opposed to other Gospels. He said, Satan entered into Judas. And Jesus looked at Judas and, and, and said, "What well, do what you came to do. I'm just here to eat the bread with you. I'm not talking to you, Judas. I'm talking to the one in you. Satan entered in Judas. So, I mean, again, if you're a believer, true believer, Satan is not going to enter into your heart. He can influence by many means, but he will not enter into your heart. So it's just amazing how that he, you know, didn't, didn't believe there's no true transformation, complete transformation. He's one of those people who sort of uh, was observing Jesus and enjoying at the same time. He had room for devil entering him so he could be part of that great sin, the horrible thing. And so Christians, uh, what we can learn from this 5, 1 to 11 is we shall not take, we should not take God lightly. He's going to take things seriously. We cannot be uh, lukewarm Christians. There is no such thing as lukewarm Christians. You're the Christian or enemy of God. And you know the result of being a child of God is actually, what, what's, what, what is the result of being child of God? You have a secure place. You have a reward. You have a home. You have a hope. You have a future. What if you're not a child of God? You have a future, but there's no hope. What is the future for, for, uh, for someone who doesn't belong to the Lord? Burning. Yeah. Eternal damnation. There's going to be weeping, gnashing of teeth. There's going to be cry, everything else. There is no peace. There's always going to be that guilt in hell. If you, if you recall, one of that, uh, the, the, the story of rich man and Lazarus, what do we learn? I mean... He remembered how he lived. If you notice that, reading that, he remembered the rich man. He was in, in that little pit of his, uh, his home. And he was looking at Father Abraham and said, Father Abraham, can you send Lazarus? I'm just so thirsty. It's so painful over here. So Father Abraham says, no. Oh, can you send Lazarus to talk to my brothers? No. Oh, he remembered how he lived while he was on the earth. Now, look at Lazarus. Look at my life. I don't even have water. Lazarus is happily resting by Abraham. Remember. So what goes on? At least by that we can learn. Those who are not with the Lord, those, those who doesn't believe in God, those who are lukewarm Christians, those who are not going to have eternal life with God, are not only going to suffer in hell, but there's also going to be the guilt there's also, the guilt is going to go along as long as that person lives in hell. How long is the person going to live in hell? Forever. Forever into eternity. Obviously, there are some people that doesn't believe that there is hell and there is no degree. There is no degrees of punishment in hell. There's so many things that people are against of because they don't want to, they simply don't want to believe in it. I mean, if hell is not real, if lake of fire is not real, why would Jesus even say that? If this eternal damnation, eternal hell is not real, then Jesus lied to everybody. 
Right? So these people that doesn't believe what the scripture is talking about hell are making Jesus a liar. Well, I would argue very simply that if there is no such place as hell or a punishment in the afterworld, uh, however you want to articulate that, then I would say God is not worthy of worship. Because then he's, there, there is no justice. There can never be justice. Yeah. And there are people who get away with horrible, awful things in this world. Mm-hmm. They'll never be called to account for them again. But everybody, Bible says, will be answering God. Whether at the Bema Seat judgment or whether a great, great white throne, right? Everybody, there's going to be an account, even though at GWT, great white throne judgment, God is going to cast these unbelievers into eternal damnation, eternal lake of fire. He's, they're still going to answer him because God gave life for a reason, for a purpose. And if there's no justice, obviously there's no accountability. When there's no accountability, who cares what they do? Right? So there's all that. I mean, in future, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to happen. If you don't belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't belong to his family, there's going to be so much pain that humanity probably would never have imagined. The Bible is making very clear to us that there is a future. Our life is one way. Either you go with the Lord into eternity or you go into the hell into eternity. There's, there's just one way. It is still, however, eternal. There are a lot of people deny that there's nothing but there's no such thing as lake of fire. There's no such thing as hell because upon death, you just disappear. It's called conditional death. Some sort of theologians believe that conditional upon death, you're just gone. Where do I go? You go anywhere. You just disappear. You don't exist after death. That is not true. That is against contrary. That is contrary to what the scripture is teaching. So. So again, one of the things that we can learn from 5, 1 to 11 is the fact that we should not take God lightly and God will not tolerate any um, life that would belittle him in any form or way because God is serious. And that's what I was making a point earlier. When these people were observing all the things the disciples were doing, how is that they are not sincere? How is that they didn't come up to them and truly believe in what God is doing? Because as soon as Acts chapter 2 happened, there's this Peter and John, they healed a lame guy. I mean, word goes out really quick. How is that they didn't believe? And they did many more things. How is that they don't know what Peter and the disciples were doing? They know exactly what is going on. Yet they made up their mind not to truly believe in God and not to truly give their lives to serve God as other people are doing because there's so many people who gave their lives, who dedicated their lives to serve God. Because when we read these chapters back and forth, again, we can learn that these people are giving themselves to uh, disciples teaching fellowship and learning under them. They are also giving things, taking care of the family of these new believers. They're providing for one another. There's nobody that is in need at the time. So that's how much they're giving to one another. They're selling things and taking care of one another. When these, uh, when these things are going on, how is that these, this Ananias and Sapphira will not take into account that God is serious, these people are serious, and see their relationship with God and act even at least by watching how these other people are living. They didn't care. They didn't regard for God. So obviously God had to punish them. That is a serious punishment for God to remove them because God's saying by doing that, I'm present in the midst of my people and you don't mess up their relationship with me. 
Right? Because God knows the devil wants to do what? What is one thing the devil wants to do? Huh? To destroy our relationship with the Lord. No matter, it doesn't matter what form or way he wants to remove us from worshiping God because he wants us to worship him. How are we going to worship him when we just don't follow God? That's good enough for him. And, oh, he brings so many things in our lives, so many dis disappointments, so many things. And, oh, see, your God is not helping you. Oh, see, your God is not concerned about you. Oh, why you still need him if he doesn't answer your prayers? Is he answering your prayers? No, I've been praying for the last several years for so-and-so to happen, but God is not answering. So what do I do? Forget about him. Just, just come here, enjoy your life. Take a drink, smoke, have fun. Oh, true, it is true. You only have one life. I know that too. That's why you got to enjoy. How long are you going to just live in a miserable life by praying and seeking God's face when he is not answering? Just forget about him. Isn't that what the second Peter, when Peter wrote the second letter to second Peter, that's one of, the, one of the main concerns. The people are teaching those people, the Peter's audience, that there is no such thing as second coming. Christ is not going to come back because once he ascended, they were expecting Christ's return. They're expecting Jesus' return back to this earth. So they were hoping and waiting for Christ's return. But there are some false teachers who came into the lives of these believers. And they're saying, did Christ come? No, he didn't yet. But uh, we're waiting to see him come. Oh, how long have you been waiting Say, I mean, he, Christ ascended when he was 33 years or so. Just about, we're only 20 years, uh, we're just in 20 years. So let's say Peter wrote that letter in, uh, in 60 AD. So how many years from 33 to 60? 37, roughly? 27? Oh, we've been waiting for 20 plus years for Christ's return. Really? And he didn't come yet? No. But were you told that he's going to come immediately? Yes, yes, Christ's return is like, it's going to be at any time. But he still didn't return. It's been 20 plus years, right? Yes, yes. Why are you still believing? You're fools. He's not going to come. After all, why would it take him so long to come if he's really going to come? He's not going to come. So these false teachers were trying to change the mind, change that hope they had in the Lord's return into hopelessness. But then that's what Peter is writing. No, no, no. There is the day of the Lord. God is going to come. Don't believe in these false teachers. God will come and you will see that. And then there's a lot of instructions that Peter gives. Even Paul tells the believers what's going to happen, how this end is going to come based on what? Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the man of lawlessness is going to be exposed. Man of sin. There's going to be some of these things that are going to happen before the return of the Lord. So hold on, hold your patience, have that hope, Christ is going to come. So, I mean, if we let the devil take control of our lives, our influence, he's going to make sure that we will go as far as we can from the Lord. We cannot let, we cannot have devil influences just like Ananas and Sapphira. I mean, do you see anything, something strange that is happening in their story? No, I mean, they just, 
They are part of everything that's going on. That's how I see it. They are part of everything that's going on. They see everything that's going on. They see the disciples teaching. People are coming there. People are, you know, I mean, to some extent, people are really respecting the disciples. They are learning from them. They have high regard for these disciples because in this chapter, the five we learn, the, the, the people, the authorities were even so worried to lay hands on these disciples when they were about to arrest them because people are given, giving so much respect for these disciples. And when you know all these things that are happening, how could you still, how could you still do what you did? So as Christians, I mean, one of, we can learn many things, but well, as Christians, what we need to do is give reverence to the Lord. As Christians, what we need to do is not live like Ananias and Sapphira. If we have a need, we should ask the Lord and God will take care of our needs, but we should never be shady in our relationship with God. Yes. But I, but I always wondered if, you know, there's so many uh, fallen angels, right? There, there, we don't know how many there are, but they're one-third of all of the angels. I mean, one-third. Um, and sometimes I wonder, you know, that, does the devil get into everybody's mind, or does he pick and choose? Um, you know, I mean, I'm thinking if there's a group of people and they're just constantly sinners, he doesn't have to worry about them because they're really going to hell. Uh, and, and he focuses on all the others. That, you know, he focuses on us because uh, he knows we're all going to God, you know. And so I'm just wondering. I just. Well, I mean, the focus would be on the ones that are in relationship with the Lord because he wanted to destroy them. I mean, those who are, that's my understanding, those who are already in the sin world, why, why, he doesn't need to stress out about them because he knows they, they're going to be with him. And, and also, I want to correct that uh, the, the one-third, there's no such thing as one-third of angels fallen with the devil because there's no scripture support for one-third. There's some fallen angels with him, but we don't know how many. So one-third is not specific. And they think, I think it's some error with theologians where they came up with that number, but... Come from that, that comes from like Revelation, but that's like where the dragon tail sweeps the yeah, yeah. stars from the sky. But that, the, where that occurs is obviously not talking about prior to all of that stuff. Yeah, the one third fallen is there's no such thing as one third fallen angels. We don't know how many, but but Satan's focus is is not the ones who are already going into that with him, but those who believe in the Lord. So those of us who are serious in relationship with the Lord, obviously we're going to face a lot of ups and downs because his focus is on those who serve the Lord. He doesn't want that to happen. We're already out of time. I want to finish up chapter 5 today, but I failed, so maybe next week. So any questions before we leave? And you need to, you need to he'll be there as well, right? It's 10.50 already. No questions that we'll close in, in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your grace. I pray, Lord, that you help us to live lives that will bring glory to you and um, help us to see if we have a lifestyle, maybe somewhere hidden in us, just like Ananias and Sapphira. We want to remove that lifestyle. We want to give our lives to you. I pray that you help us see the importance of dedicating ourselves to you so that, Lord, you would receive all that glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Okay, so I'll see you all next week. Thank you for joining.